If you have a Bible with you this morning, I encourage you to open it with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. And in just a moment, we're going to give our attention, beginning with Mark 8, verse 34, all the way down to Mark 9, chapter 1. So Mark 8, verse 34, through Mark 9, verse 1. While you're finding your place in a copy of God's Word, I want to take just a moment and give some recognition. Uh, It's a special Sunday for us here as part of our church staff is celebrating a five-year anniversary. Uh, Five years ago, we welcomed on board uh, to the church staff uh, a secretary, a new secretary. And it has been an exciting five years, a very encouraging five years. And I'm excited to say that after five years, she's about got it figured out. And so we're really, really thankful. But five years ago, we brought Jennifer Lambert on board. And the fit was immediate, and she's brought so much joy uh, to our staff and to working here day in and day out during the week. And she does a fantastic job for us. Uh, I was blessed to have an older brother as a sibling when I was growing up, uh, but I've often imagined that if I were to have a sister, uh, I hope she would have been like Jennifer. We have a wonderful relationship, and we have a lot of fun. We're incredibly thankful for all that she does for us. She and her family uh, are not official members of the faith family here at Poplar Springs. They worship uh, in another church, and we're thankful for that. But we're blessed to have them here with us today. Uh, But unofficially, uh, we count them as part of the church family here at Poplar Springs for all that they do and for all that they mean to us. And we're excited that Jennifer is celebrating five years with us at Poplar Springs this year. So would you show your appreciation to Jennifer Lambert this morning? And Jennifer, would you come up here and join me on the platform? You can't climb stairs? I'll come down there. Now you're up here. All right, all right. So we appreciate you, Jennifer, and we appreciate all that you do for our church family. I appreciate you putting up with me. That's a job in and of itself, and you do it, you do it quite well. Uh, Jennifer is also uh, eagerly uh, anticipating a welcome uh, to a new member of their family, her and her husband, Dent, and their two boys. And so we're excited about that for you. And I just want to pray for you. And uh, we want to thank the Lord for you and your service here. And we'll pray for your uh, new arrival that's coming soon and pray for that transition in your family, okay? You. Church family, would you join me in praying and giving thanks to the Lord for Jennifer? Father, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity of worship again. And Lord, we're so thankful for the wonderful people that you bring into our lives as we seek to serve you. And we thank you for Jennifer. We thank you for the service she's given to your church here at Poplar Springs. And God, we thank you for the, the way that she loves you, the way she loves this church, and how she loves to do work for you. And Father, we thank you for the blessing that you brought us and bringing to us here. And Father, we pray, Lord, that you would be with her and Dent. We pray for their family as they, uh, Lord, welcome a new arrival soon. We thank you for that gift and blessing in their life. And we pray that you would be with them in that time of transition as their family grows and Father, we just pray, Lord, that it would be a joyous and wonderful occasion. And Father, we pray you would continue to use Jennifer, Lord, as she serves the faith family here at Poplar Springs. Lord, as she, uh, Lord, helps us in so many ways to make much of you and make disciples of Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you for her and we pray for these things and ask for them. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, Jennifer. We appreciate you so much. And I apologize for making the pregnant woman walk up the stairs. She'll, she'll get on me tomorrow morning in the office about that. So, but Dent, we're glad to have you here, boys. We're glad to have all of you here with us as well. I thought I heard Dent out there when I was baptized, and I said, that sounds like Dent Lamper out there worshiping. He's, he's a good amen corner over there. All right, let's get into the word this morning. Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. I'm going to start reading with verse 34, 
I'm going to read down through Mark 9, verse 1. Mark 8, verse 34, through Mark 9, verse 1. Follow along as I read and hear the word of God this morning. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Would you pray with me once more? Almighty God and King, we thank you for this, your holy word. And Father, we pray now that you would bless the reading and the preaching of it. Father, may your word go out now in demonstration and power of your spirit, and may you use it, O Lord, to accomplish your good and eternal purposes in our lives. And Father, we ask now that you would give us eyes that we could see. God, give us ears that we may hear. Father, give us hearts that we may believe what your word will say to us today. And Father, we pray for all of this, that you, O Lord, will be glorified. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we come to the final passage in the first half of Mark's gospel. And since we're at this halfway point, I feel like it would be a good place to take a break. So in the coming Sundays, Lord willing, we're going to go to the Old Testament and look at the first six chapters of Daniel together. Now, for all of you prophecy gurus out there, that leaves you a little bit disappointed because we, we don't really get to the, uh, the, the weird and wacko stuff in Daniel until after chapter 6. But the first six chapters are immensely important and incredibly relevant for the life and the world that we're living in now. So I think we would do good to consider what Daniel's, uh, Daniel chapters 1 through 6 says to us. And then perhaps at some point we'll go back and pick up the prophecies toward the end. And then, Lord willing, we'll close out our years. We give attention to the advent of Christ and the Christmas season. And then, hopefully, as we come to 2023, we'll pick back up in our series through Mark and conclude our study of the gospel. But today, right now, this Sunday, we're still in Mark. And if my count is correct, this marks the 28th message in the series. And what I'm about to say to you is not mere idle preacher talk. It's not simply filling space and the time allotted for a sermon, but I really believe what I'm about to say. This may be the most important sermon in the series by far. That what we hear Jesus say to us in the text today is something we must give full consideration to. Because in the verses that we're looking at this morning, Jesus lays out for us what it means to follow him. He provides for us the terms and conditions of what it means to be his follower, what it means to be a believer, what it means to confess Christ as Lord. Terms and conditions are things that we're somewhat familiar with. They apply to many aspects of our lives. Nearly every purchase we make, every agreement we enter, and many of the relationships that we have are bound by certain obligations and expect expectations. And it's no different when we come to follow Jesus. And I think as we hear these words this morning, we do well 
to ask ourselves, have I met these terms and conditions? Now let me be clear from the outset. We don't meet these terms and conditions in order to merit salvation, in order to obtain salvation, but rather as we profess faith in Christ, these terms and conditions then shape our lives. And so what Jesus is saying to us is that if our life doesn't look like this, if we're not living up to these expectations, if we're not arranging our lives in this fashion, then we are not followers of Christ. I think many people today consider themselves to be followers of Christ, yet by the standard given to us in the text, they simply have a profession of Jesus and not possession of Jesus. What I mean by that is that they have come to Jesus on their own terms. And it doesn't work that way. Jesus is going to give us an exceptionally hard word this morning. Because to accept Jesus as Christ is to accept the terms and conditions associated with him as the Christ. So this morning, the legitimacy of our discipleship, of our salvation, of our confession, is bound by the words of Jesus in this text. What it means to be a true follower, to have saving faith, to be a genuine believer is placed before us in the words that we're looking at this morning. And what we hear is Jesus expressed three thoughts in this text in relation to following him. Jesus is going to speak to us in these, in these verses about an invitation to follow, the stipulations of following, and considerations for following. An invitation, stipulations, and considerations. So let's look at each one of these and consider what it means to follow Jesus. First of all, Jesus gives us an invitation to follow. This is where the text begins in the first part of verse 34. Mark tells us that Jesus called the crowd to himself with his disciples. Now let's back up for just a moment and understand the context of what's going on in this particular passage. Previously, we saw Peter make his bold confession that Jesus is the Christ. This took place as Jesus was walking with his disciples on the way to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And as Peter gave that bold confession, he then confronted Jesus about what Jesus shared in regards to his upcoming crucifixion. And Peter was rebuked by Jesus. Jesus called both Peter and all of the other disciples to set their minds not on the things of man, but rather on the things of God. And then following that rebuke, Jesus now expands the audience. That conversation took place just between Jesus and the twelve, but now perhaps they've arrived in the village of Caesarea Philippi, and others are there in the village along the roads or in the marketplace, and now Jesus calls all who can hear him to give attention to what he is about to say. He extends an invitation, and Jesus carries this invitation all throughout his comments. As he begins there in the middle of verse 34, he says, if anyone would come after me. The invitation is for all who would hear, for all who are gathered. He says, if you would come after me, it's available to you. He continues on in verse 35 when he uses the, the word whoever. He uses it again in the middle of the verse, but whoever. Then in verse 36 and 37, he uses the term man there. In each of those instances, Jesus is not speaking of a specific individual. He's not even speaking of the male gender, but he's using that language to speak of all mankind, of all humanity. 
anyone and everyone. And then in verse 38, the last verse of chapter 8, Jesus then includes a whoever. We hear very clearly that Jesus is extending a universal invitation. This is the scope that he is offering for everyone, everywhere to come and to follow after him. We've seen this in our study of Mark's gospel previously, haven't we? We see it with those who Jesus has already called to himself. He called fishermen and businessmen. He called despised and hated tax collectors. He called political zealots. He reached out to the outcasts, the broken, the sick, the separated. Jesus says, anyone and everyone can come and follow me. This is the scope of the invitation that he gives. And I want you to hear me this morning. It extends to everyone in this room today. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus says you are someone, you're anyone, you're a whoever. We're familiar with perhaps the most uh, famous verse in all of Scripture, John chapter 3, 16, probably known by more people than any other verse in the Bible. And do you remember what Jesus said there to Nicodemus? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, gave him to go to the cross and to die for sins, to shed his blood, to give his life as a substitute and a sacrifice, that whosoever, anyone, rich, poor, pretty, ugly, known, unknown, have a lot, have nothing. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are in life, what the world thinks of you. Jesus says you can come and be my follower. He extends an invitation to all. And we can't miss that as we come here. Jesus says, if anyone, I wonder, have you? Have you responded to the invitation that Jesus gives to, to come to him and to be his follower, to believe in him, to place faith in him? We need to see the scope of the invitation. But uh, there's another element that's here that we can't miss. Mark kind of points this out at the beginning of verse 34. As Jesus calls the crowd, as he expands the audience in this conversation, Mark tells us that he did that with his disciples as well. So Jesus has his 12 there with him. And in this message that he is now preaching to the multitude that is gathered around him, the 12 are hearing, they're listening, they're being reminded of what Jesus has already taught them and shown to them. But I think it's important that we consider that they were part of this audience as well because Jesus is wanting them to know that my invitation goes out to everyone. The scope of the invitation goes to all. Therefore, as my disciples, you need to share the invitation with all. Because Jesus calls everyone to follow him, we need to call everyone to follow Jesus. This is a call to evangelism, a call to be a faithful witness, a call to point others to Christ. Jesus extends this invitation, and we must do so as well. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time, or who was the last person that you told about Jesus? that you told them Jesus has an invitation to you to come and to follow him, that you told them that Jesus is a savior that we all need from our sin. When was the last time you handed a gospel track or shared a gospel word? Oh, the invitation of Jesus is found here in the end of Mark chapter 8 is a reminder to us all as his disciples, as his followers, that we must be faithful in sharing the good news with others. So Jesus begins this conversation by extending 
an invitation to follow him. But then after that, in the second part of verse 34, Jesus gives the stipulations of following him. Look at what he says. If anyone would come after me, here's what's got to happen. Here's what it looks like. This is what it means to be my follower. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. These are the terms and conditions that apply to being a Christian, to being a Christ follower, to being a believer, to knowing and experiencing salvation. This is what it looks like to live a life of faith in Jesus as the Christ. This is what it looks like to have confession of Christ and not mere profession of him. And I think if there's ever been a day and a time in which we need to consider the words that Jesus gives, it's right now. It is right now. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a name that many of you will probably recognize. He was a German pastor and theologian. Uh, He lived under the Nazi regime there in Germany, and uh, he despised all that was taking place under Hitler's reign there. He worked actively with others to seek uh, seek a way that he could go about uh, ending Hitler's reign. He uh, put in place several assassination plots with others that ultimately weren't successful. He was found out and ultimately killed. Uh, for those attempts that he made upon Hitler's life. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer understood, and he understood it quite well, and he wrote wrote about it uh, quite often, that there's a high cost to following Jesus Christ. The world today would have us to believe, and even many in the church today would have us to believe, that it costs nothing to come to Jesus. Bonhoeffer called that cheap grace. And he said there's no such thing as cheap grace. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, which has become a Christian classic in a relatively short period of time, Bonhoeffer makes it plain that when Jesus bids a man to come, and that's what Jesus is doing here in our text, if anyone would come after me, that's the call of Christ, come and follow me. But when he issues that invitation, when he bids a man to come, he bids him to come and die. Now that's a far cry from what we hear being said about following Christ in our day and age. A lot of people say, come and follow Christ and you'll have health and wealth and prosperity. Come and follow Christ and all the cares of your life will suddenly vanish away. Come and follow Christ and and your life will be all that you've imagined it can be. Tell me if you've heard this, come and follow Christ and have your best life now. That's not the invitation that Jesus is extending. That's not the message that Jesus is preaching here. Far, far from it. You see, Jesus understands that if we're going to follow him, it's more than simply hanging an ornament upon a Christmas tree to adorn it. We simply don't attach Jesus to our life to adorn us. No, when we come to Jesus, he consumes all of us. Jesus says these are the stipulations of what it means to be my follower, to be a believer, to have faith in me. He says there's three terms and conditions. First of all, he said in the second part of verse 34, that if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves. They must deny themselves. This is self-denial. That word deny that Jesus used there, it simply means to be put off, to be put away. And what Jesus is saying, if you want to be my follower, you've got to put yourself away. You've got to refuse yourself. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, well, he's getting uh, at the heart of the problem with every single human being. 
Because of our sin nature that we all have, we desire to be the very center of all things. We desire to rule and reign upon our hearts, the throne of our hearts and over our lives. We want to be the center of the universe. And maybe you're sitting there and thinking, I don't know that I really believe that. That's a pretty, pretty strong statement you're making there this morning, preacher. Well, let me give you a really simple example. Have you ever seen a toddler in the checkout line that wants a candy bar and they can't have it? You ever experienced what happened in that moment? The child wants the candy or the toy or whatever it is that the marketers place right there in their line of sight as they're sitting in the buggy with their parent. And the parent says, no, no, you, you can't have that. It'll ruin your supper. You can't take that home today. We're not getting that today. And you know what happens a lot of times in that moment? All heck breaks loose in the checkout line, doesn't it? That toddler starts contorting and, and screaming bloody murder, and you feel like everybody in that store is looking at you. They start throwing a fit and throwing a tantrum. You know what's going on in that moment? That's the sinful, rebellious nature in the heart of that child that's simply coming to the surface. They're declaring that you are not living in my world, that I am the center of, and I'm going to make life miserable for you. It starts early. And you know what? It continues on. You see, the reality is that as we have grown up, we do the same thing. We've just become more clever in how we disguise our autonomy, how we disguise wanting the world and the universe to revolve around us, to be about us. Let me ask you if this has ever happened to you. Have you ever been going down the road trying to get somewhere and a slow car pulls out in front of you? Never happens to you. Never. They pull out, and they're going 10 miles below the speed limit when everybody knows you can get at least 8 miles over without any fear of anything happening. And you're, you're frustrated, you're mad, you're, you're beating the steering wheel, there's smoke coming out of your ears, you're fussing that person out. Man, what are they doing? What's going on in my world? Right? That's your heart. That's you wanting to be the very center of your world. And you know what's happening? That person just knocked your world off its axis. And you can't handle it. Jesus says this is really the issue with all of us. And if we want to be his follower, what it means is that we dethrone ourselves off the, uh, the throne of our heart and our lives. We reject ourselves as number one, as most important. We deny ourselves. It also carries the idea that we deny any attempt or ability on our part to earn any merit or favor from God. We recognize that we don't have the ability to save ourselves or to be good enough. There's no scales waiting for you when you stand before God. Because even the best that you can do, even the, uh, the most good that you can perform is not good enough to earn your way to him in heaven. So Jesus says we must deny ourselves, stipulation number one. And then he adds to that the second. He says, and take up your cross. Deny yourself and take up your cross. The second stipulation is that to follow Jesus, you must embrace suffering. How different is this than what we hear so often today? Jesus says, if you want to be my follower, you adopt you embrace you are willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel 
to suffer as a follower of Christ. Jesus had just told Peter uh, that he was going to go and suffer many things. And Jesus would teach his disciples that the world has hated me. You better expect that it's going to hate you. If you have a desire to be liked, to be appreciated, to be affirmed, to be accepted in this world by others, it's probably a pretty good indication that you've not come to a full following of Jesus. Because Jesus says, if you're going to live for me and live like me, this world is going to hate you. Jesus uses the imagery here of taking up your cross. And this was shocking to his audience in that day. When we think of a cross, we think of the necklaces that we wear, or the artifacts that we hang in our homes sometimes. But when his audience heard the terminology and the imagery of cross, they were shocked. Because the cross in that time was a means of execution. It was a a means of great suffering. Invented by the Romans, it was how they would put to death the most heinous criminals among them. And Jesus knew that's where he was headed, and he knew that to be his follower, we too must be willing to suffer. Now, it doesn't ultimately mean that all of us will perhaps have to give our lives for following Christ. It doesn't mean that we'll all die a martyr's death, but it does mean that to be a follower of Jesus, you can expect opposition. You can expect persecution. You can expect things to be hard many, many times for the stand that you take to follow after Jesus. Jesus says the stipulation of following him is to have self-denial, to embrace suffering, and then he adds to those and follow me. The stipulation of surrender. Follow me. That's a very succinct command. Follow me. Jesus is saying, I am the Lord of your life. I chart the course. I direct the path. You go where I lead. To be his follower means that you surrender all rights and authority in your life. It is now handed over completely to him. I know how hard that is for us. You see, a lot of people like the idea of having Jesus as a savior. They, they recognize that, that they're sinners in the, the eyes of a holy God, and they, they understand the concept of God's justice, judgment, and wrath, and, and, and judgment being poured out against them for that. And, and they want to know, is there any escape? Is there any hope? And Jesus says, yes, through my sacrifice, through my life, I can save you from the wrath of God that's come against sin. And boy, they're all about that. But what they fail to realize and what so many of them have failed to to be uh, taught and what's failed to be shared is that Jesus is not just Savior. He is Savior and Lord. And hear me this morning. You can't have him as Savior unless you also take him as Lord. He is not a schizophrenic Christ. He is Savior and Lord. And so unless you're willing to bow the knee and bow the heart and surrender your life to him, he is not your savior. This is what Jesus is implying here when he says, you must follow me. You relinquish all rights and all authority in your life. He is now sitting upon the throne. He rules and reigns over all. Someone once said, if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. There's no compartmentalizing your life. There's no saying, I'll give Jesus this day, and I'll take six days, I'll give Jesus this, and I'm going to handle that. No, he has possession of it all. We follow him in everything. These are the terms and conditions of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You lay your life down. You take up a cross. You surrender your authority. 
I wonder today, have you done that? This is a far cry from how so many invitations are given in the, uh, the church today. But Jesus here is calling people to follow him. He's calling people to accept him. And this is what he says. I'm afraid for so often we've sold people a bill of goods. And on that day of judgment, there are going to be many who stand before him and be condemned. Because the invitation of the gospel was not rightly shared and executed and applied. They were given a false Christ, a false hope, a false gospel. Jesus says, this is what it means to be my follower. And when you understand this, you understand why, as we go into Mark's gospel later, that the crowds that were there for so many occasions soon began to fall away. You understand why so many who start out really strong fade away. Because we like the idea of having all of our sins dealt with, but we don't like the idea of laying our lives down. But Jesus says, this is the stipulation. These are the terms and conditions. And I want to remind us this morning that neither you nor I have any authority or right to change those. They belong to Jesus. And this is what he says. He gives us an invitation to follow based upon the terms that he supplies. And then in the end of our text this morning, he gives us considerations for following. This begins in verse 35 and takes us to the first verse in chapter 9. Considerations for following. Now we, we hear that word from Jesus, and that is a strong, hard word. We're reminded this morning that Jesus isn't always loving hugs. I, I'm inclined to think that Jesus didn't have a big old smile upon his face when he was saying this to the crowds that were there. There was earnest seriousness in the message that he was proclaiming. It's a strong word, it's a hard word. And following the stipulations, he then supplies considerations for why we should take them up. We hear what Jesus says, and we say, who in their right mind would lay their life down? Who in their right mind would pick up a cross? Who in their right mind would follow the orders of another? Well, Jesus is going to tell us why we should. He starts with verse 35, and all the way through the end of chapter 8, every verse begins with the Greek word gar. It's our English word for. For, verse 35. Verse 36, for. Verse 37, for. Verse 38, for. And in these verses, he is providing clarification. He's, he's kind of giving us some understanding of why we should heed the terms and conditions that he has just supplied. There's three considerations that he gives. First of all, he provides for us a paradoxical consideration. This is verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is a paradoxical statement by Jesus. Now, just to remind us all what a paradox is, because we're all familiar with that. A paradox is a seemingly contradictory statement that proves itself to be true. A seemingly contradictory statement that proves itself to be true. So this would kind of be an example of a paradox. The way up is down. The way forward is back. On the surface, you don't go forward by going backwards. But in some senses, you can go forward by taking a step back. We understand that, right? That's a paradox. Jesus employs that here in verse 35. The paradox that he has is in relation to our lives. He says in verse 35... If you desire to save your life, 
That is, if you desire to maintain your autonomy, to refuse self-denial, to not take up a cross, to save your life and all that this world can give you in life, Jesus says you are destined to lose it. You strive to keep everything that you can get and you will have nothing at all. But, he says, whoever will lose his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Jesus says, if you're willing to lay your life down and give your life up and let your life go, then in the end you will ultimately have life. You see, this world tells us that we'll have life if we'll hold on to everything that we can get and be all that we can be. And Jesus says, no, in fact, it's just the opposite. If you truly want life, abundant life, eternal life, you must let go of your life and let me have it instead. Paradoxical statement. Jesus says, consider that. There's a weightiness to what he's talking about. We can't miss that. He's talking about life. He says it's a strong consideration that you've got to give here and think about how you obtain it. It's only through me. And then he goes on in verse 36 and 37, he gives us an economical consideration. In verse 36, he says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? In verse 37, For what can a man give in return for his soul? Your soul is that immaterial aspect of you that bears the image and likeness of God. Everyone has one. And everyone's soul will reside forever and eternity. The soul is the essence of who you are. And Jesus says here, what are you going to take in this world in exchange for your soul? What does it profit you to have everything that the world can lay at your feet and yet your soul be lost to eternal damnation? Jesus here puts before us columns of gain and loss. So many people in the, the world today are seeking to gain, to get, and to have. And Jesus says, ultimately, in the end, they'll forfeit it all. And their soul will perish for eternity in the place called hell. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus weaves a parable. He tells a story. It's the parable of the rich fool. And in that story, Jesus says there was a, a man who had a great harvest one year. His crops brought in so much that the barns he had couldn't hold it, so he tore those barn down, barns down and built bigger barns so he could keep it all. And as he observed all that took place in that harvest, man, he, he said, I've done so much and I have so much and I've got so much put up. I'm okay. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. And as Jesus concluded that story, this is what he said, you fool. You fool. When God calls someone a fool, you better pay attention to who he's talking about. He said, you are a fool. He said, all the consideration you've given is for the temporal, the earthly, the transitory, that which will not last forever. You've given no consideration about who gave you that harvest, how to use that harvest as a blessing to others. He said, you've given no consideration about your soul at all. And Jesus says, tonight, you fool, your soul will be required of you. He says, you're rich in the eyes of man, but you're bankrupt in the eyes of God. That's many in the world today. They think they've got it all, but their souls are empty and their souls are headed to damnation. Jesus gives us an economical consideration. And then he concludes with a third one. Verse 38 and into chapter 9, verse 1, an eternal consideration. Jesus says, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words and this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. 
Now, there's a lot of times when we hear these words from Jesus, we, we hear him use the word ashamed. And we think that he's speaking of that time when we didn't share Jesus when we thought we should have. We weren't a faithful witness. We, we didn't hand out that gospel tract. We didn't invite somebody to come to church. We didn't tell somebody about Jesus. And we should do all of those things. And we should be unashamed to tell others about Jesus. But that's not what Jesus is saying in this verse. When Jesus uses the word ashamed here, he's using it with the understanding of honor. That whoever does not honor me, that in this adulterous and sinful uh, generation, in this idolatrous generation, they honor their idols. They honor the gods of their making. Not just the things that they craft with their hands, but the desires that rule in their heart. Jesus says they want those things more than they want me. And Jesus says, if that's you and you don't honor me in this day, in this age, in this time, there's coming a day when I will stand before you and I will dishonor you. And the dishonor that Jesus meets out will be casting people into eternal darkness and damnation. Jesus says, you better consider the eternal ramifications of your consideration and following after me. And as we get to verse 1 in chapter 9, Jesus continues and he says, truly, Anytime he front ends a statement with that word, he's he's driving something home, and he's driving it home here as he concludes. He says, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about here? There's been a lot of ink used in trying to understand what Jesus is saying. It's clear that he's offering some sort of a prophetic statement, that those who are in his audience, something is going to take place before some of them pass away that will give evidence of the power that he possesses, that they'll see the kingdom of God coming in power. And so the question is, is what is he talking about? And there are all kinds of speculations. We don't have the time to really dig into them all. Some think it's uh, the transfiguration is going to happen immediately following this. Others think he's pointing to the end time return where he wraps everything up. I, I'm not inclined to think that it's either of those. I'm not saying they're necessarily wrong, but I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think what Jesus is alluding to in connection to him being the one who will execute judgment that he spoke of in verse 38 is the reality of his coming resurrection. Jesus has spoken previously that he will suffer, he will be crucified, and he will rise. And now he's driving that point home again. And what he's saying is that there are some of you who are here, you're not going to see death until you see me come in the power of resurrection. The full reality of the kingdom of God has come that he rules even over death itself. There were some who were there that day that they did die. We know one particularly. His name was Judas Iscariot. Before Jesus was crucified and before he raised three days later, Judas, because of his betrayal, went out and hung himself. But the others, they saw the resurrected Christ. They were a glimpse to the power and the kingdom and the glory that was his as he conquered over death, the grave, sin, and Satan. And now you're saying, well, what what does that have to do with what he's talking about here? Here's what it has to do. Here's how how it touches it. Because Jesus Christ is the resurrected Lord, all authority has been handed over to him. He holds the keys of death and hell. He holds the keys of heaven as well. 
All authority has been placed in him. And as the resurrected living Lord, he is the one who will decide the eternal fate of all. Jesus says, I'm giving you the opportunity right now to come to my side. I'm giving you the opportunity to come and to follow after me. And I want you to hear me this morning. I'm not trying to sell you anything. I'm not trying to to, to woo you with anything. I want you to know that there is a high cost to follow Jesus. There's a high cost to laying your life down. There's a high cost to picking up a cross. There's a high cost to taking orders from another. That your life is handed over to him as Lord. But I also want you to know that it's eternally worth it. That the cost that you pay will be far exceeded exceeded by the reward that you will receive. The joy of heaven and eternity with him. So Jesus asked, will you follow me? Will you lay your life down? Will you take up a cross? Will you surrender to me? And I'm asking you the same today. Have you followed Jesus? Have you come to him on these terms and conditions? Have you come to him with these stipulations, this understanding of what it means, the invitation that he gives? Have you responded to this? Because this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.